Please turn to Psalm 24. Uh, if you're in Fusion or JF, there is a handout. Hopefully you've got one. If you haven't, just put your hand up. Uh, there are some at the back, I know, uh, and Ollie or Ben will bring them around. But hopefully you've got a copy. I have a problem. I know and believe with all my heart that Jesus is the King of glory. I believe that he came to earth. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he laid down that life in excruciating pain at Calvary. I believe that on the third day he rose miraculously from the dead. And after that, 40 days later, he ascended back into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. I believe that he is my Lord and Savior. I believe the Lord is my shepherd. I tell myself that every day. So you say, Trevor, what's your problem? It's this. Though I believe these things about the Lord Jesus with all my heart and have done so for over 50 years now as a Christian, my problem is it doesn't weigh as heavily in my life as it ought to. It doesn't weigh upon me that he is the king of glory. And that's particularly strange because the word glory in the Bible carries with it the idea of something extremely powerful, awesome, weighty, solid, substantial. Jesus is all those things and, and more, but I don't always feel that. I don't feel the weight of that in my life. I suspect I'm not alone in that problem. Perhaps if you're a Christian here, you feel that as well. A few years ago, there was a man called David Wells who wrote a book called God in the Wasteland. It was about our 20th century, 21st century world. Actually, it was about the 20th century. He wrote it just before the turn of the 21st century. And the increasingly godless, secular nature of the Western world. And he wrote this. One of the defining marks of our time is that God is now weightless. He has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his relevance for human life in our culture. We consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than our appetite for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's flattery and lies. That, says David Wells, is weightlessness. That is weightlessness. And he's not simply describing secular non-Christians. He is aware that this is one of the sad marks of the church in the Western world in the 21st century. We have lost our sense of the weightiness of the glory of God. Our priorities seem more important to us than he, than him. 
our work, our careers, our family, our loved ones, our sport, our holidays, our ambitions. And yes, even when life goes pear-shaped and problems and heartaches and tragedy invade our lives, then often he's no more weighty to us than before. It's a problem. It's a problem I feel. I sense it's a problem that a lot of us feel. Which is why I'm so pleased we're looking at Psalm 24. David wants us to see that the Lord, remember last week, Yahweh, the Lord spelt in capitals, the close-up and personal name for God, the God of the promise, the God of covenant, the Lord of Psalm 23, who is our shepherd, who is up close and near his people, is at the same time the most awesome, glorious, overwhelming king of glory. And in this great song, David wants God's people to rejoice and have a sense of the weightiness of their king, who is the king of glory. And there are three great truths that he draws to our attention that I want us to see this morning. Who he is, what he's like, how this weightiness shows itself. The first is in verses 1 and 2. David says, I want, to, I want you to feel the weight of the Lord's power and authority. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Here's the great reality check. Everything that you and I possess, everything that we see and touch and handle in this world belongs to God. That's the reality. That's the reality. I took a funeral earlier this week. I'm reminded every time I go into that crematorium, how much do they leave behind? Left behind everything. Because ultimately it's not ours. A man called Adrian Abraham Kuyper, who was actually a prime minister in Holland at one point, as well as a great theologian, he put it like this. There is not one square millimeter in the whole realm of human existence over which Jesus, who is king of all, does not cry, mine, it's mine, it's mine. If you've made something, you own it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I don't know if you've seen that TV program, How Do They Do It? How do they do it? Colin, great. I don't know how many time you have to get out at all because you seem to know every TV program and film that comes up, but it's brilliant. And for those who don't know what it's like, it's just basically a program about how they make things. Not just amazing things like uh, spacecraft, or skyscrapers like the Shard in London, but everyday things like, how do they get toothpaste in the tube? Have you ever thought about that? It, it, uh, it strains my mind every morning. How do they get that in there? You know what it's like, you try and get it back in when you've got too much out. How do they get it in there in the first place? How do you make a tea bag? How do you make a tea bag? How do you get a wick in the candle? You see, in every episode, you are made to realize how complex it is to make something. How many years of trial and error have often gone into developing that idea into 
realism, even the most simplest thing, think about this. How about God? How did he go about making the world and everything in it? Here's the blind, mind-blowing thing, answer of Genesis. He did it with a word. He did it by speaking, by just saying a word. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there, let there be land and sea and sky. And there was. Let there be sun and moon and stars in their billions. And there was. Let there be trees and plants and fruit. Let there be fish and animals of every kind. Imagine, imagine you had the power to create something just by a word. Well, it's unimaginable really, isn't it? Try it sometime. Just try and create something by wishing it into existence. I'd like a dog. I'd like a dog. Dog, appear. Nothing's happened. God doesn't have that problem. This is the astonishing thing. He's the maker of everything. He didn't make the world by spending millions of years in a laboratory or a workshop, building prototypes, having failures, learning from his mistakes, tweaking the formula, altering the design plans. He did it with a word. This is what it is to be God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine it? It certainly puts us in our place, doesn't it? That he is totally, absolutely other, different than us. What the Bible sums up in that one word, holy, that we often have wrong ideas about. But it's just the otherness of God, the awesomeness, the power, the greatness of God. He is the maker. It ought to make us realize how great he is and how small we are. John Piper put it like this, God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. That's great, isn't that so true? God made man small and the universe, which we can't even measure, big to say something about himself. Our life is given us by the Lord. It belongs to him. Just as there's not one star in the night sky that doesn't belong to him, there's not one human being on the face of earth who does not belong to him. He is that big, he is that powerful. In the New Testament, it tells us that this Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, and it says this about him. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and things upon the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All, 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 all. You get the point that Paul is making. He is that big, that enormous. He is that weighty. There was a moment, wasn't there? when the apostles were around the Lord Jesus, when something of his glory shone through. And do you remember what happened? It caused them to fall down. Peter said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. 
There was something about this glory that made Peter feel the wickedness and the, the sinfulness of his own life and get the glory of this person. That's what happens when you're in, in the presence of glory. Now, Christian, this is your God. I fear our God is far too small. David had a deep sense of the greatness of the Lord. The Lord who was his shepherd, who was close up and personal to him, is also the Lord Almighty. Psalm 24, verse 10. In fact, unless he is supreme and all-powerful, he doesn't have the power to be our shepherd. The two go together. It's the incredible nature of our God. But he's the God who has the first and the last word upon this whole universe. That is astonishing. What is history about? It's a hackneyed phrase, but it is his story. His story. It's all God's plan of salvation being unfolded. David wants us to feel the weight of God's power and authority. But then notice in verses 3 to 6, he wants us to feel the weight of God's purity. This week, those people, on, those youngsters on KGS camp, have been asked, hearing about the questions that God asks of us. They are actually the questions that really matter. Often we think it's the other way around. Uh, what question would you like to ask God? As if we're in the driving seat. It's like an ant asking a university professor. Uh, can I ask you a few questions about yourself, your motives, and what you're about? It's ludicrous, isn't it? The questions that matter are the questions that God asks of us. He's the boss. He's in charge. He's the Lord of it all. And here's one of the questions that is asking. Verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can go near God, in other words? This God of such power and authority that we've been thinking about, who can possibly, who dare, near, near, go near to him? Who can go, verse 3, into his holy place? Well, the answer is given us in verse 4. We don't have to ponder about this. The answer is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Ah, says the average Brit, I'm okay then. I know I'm not perfect, but I do try my best. I'm a good person. I think I'm going to be acceptable to God. Well, says David, yes, if you were a good person, you would be acceptable to God. That's what the Bible says. Yeah, if you're really good, perfectly good, that's what the Bible means by good, absolutely, purely good, then you could ascend into his presence. The problem is, none of us are. None of us can. We're not good as God counts goodness. And how does he count goodness? What does he say is good? Well, he uses these two pictures. is to have clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, it's to be absolutely right on the outside, to have never said or done anything spiteful or hurtful, unkind or snide or malicious to another person, and it's to be pure on the inside, a clean heart. Never to have had a wicked, jealous, murderous thought about another person. Or a lustful thought, 
Never to have envied somebody else. Well, this quickly whittles the field down, doesn't it? In other words, David is saying it's to be morally perfect. And that's our problem. None of us is. And we need to feel the weight of that. But that's not the only problem we have. It's not just about our way we treat one another, our relationships to other human beings. David goes on about the fact that in verse 4, it's about our relationship to God. It's about the person who does not trust in the idol or swear by a false god. Now, idols are not those statuettes or they're not a Buddha. They're not some uh, man-made thing that we bow down to. An idol is anything that we allow to take God's rightful place in our life. Anything we get excited about more than our maker. Idols are always, for the most part, good things. They're attractive things. Indeed, they're a gift from God. Like family, or career, or children, or money, or sport, or education. Good gifts from God. But they become idols when they become what we live for. The good thing becomes a God thing and takes God's rightful place in our lives. And we need to feel the weight of this because as Tim Keller puts it, the human heart is an idol-making factory. What is it that if it were taken from us today, we would be utterly bereft and devastated to lose? That we can no, no longer do I wonder what it would be. It kind of puts the finger on what the idol may be. And here's this God who lives in utter perfection, in holiness. And here we are, messed up, dirty, rebellious, at angst with one another, separated from God. But here's the good news. Though we are messed up as far as our relationship with God is concerned, though we're all guilty of putting other people, other people in the place of God, yet there is hope. And it's not found in us. It's found in verse 5. In God their Saviour. It is yet possible that through this Saviour, guilty men and women, boys and girls, can be Vindicated can be made right with God. This God of stunning holiness and purity. Through this Saviour, they might yet receive blessing from the Lord. How? Well, the answer is in the last part of the psalm. The great news is that there is a king who is absolutely pure and good, untainted, morally perfect, and who's one vindication, one forgiveness for his people. David calls him the king of glory. And he wants us in the last few verses of this psalm to feel the weight of the Lord's victory. Now this psalm was almost certainly sung by David in that incident that we find in 2 Samuel 6 where, if you remember, David brought the ark up to Jerusalem, the ark of the covenant, that symbol of the presence of God. And this was the song that was upon their lips. The people of God, the Israelites, were rejoicing. 
that God was back amongst them. They were taking him to Jerusalem, the holy city, that symbol of God's presence here on earth. And as they did so, they rejoiced. In 2 Samuel 6, we're told that the procession slowly made its way, very slowly, because every six steps, it stopped to sacrifice a bull and a goat in gratitude to God. So it took a very long time for this procession to reach the city gates. And as it made its journey, David, the king himself, danced before the ark. He was so happy. He was so joyful, so rejoicing that he couldn't contain it. He danced before the ark. They sang the song. They, they danced before the ark. They approached the city gates. And as the procession grew near to those huge gates of Jerusalem, the cry went up, open up the gates for the king. Verse 7, be lifted up, you ancient doors. The reply comes, who is this king? Answer, he is the king of glory. Is it you, David? Is it you? Are you the king of glory? You've won great victories after all. You're Israel's greatest king. Are you the king of glory? Perish the thought, says David. No, it's not me. It is the Lord. Yahweh, L-O-R-D. It is the Lord. He is the king of glory. Strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. He's the one who's given us the victories that we've enjoyed. It's all down to him. To him alone belongs the glory. There's only one true king. It's not me, says David. It is the Lord. The Lord who is our shepherd is our king. 600 years later, at this very same place, one of David's descendants, one the Bible calls David's greatest son, would ride in victory up the hill toward the city walls, towards the city gates. The crowd went bananas. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus, the Lord, enters Jerusalem, the city of God. He ascends up to Jerusalem, which is on a hill. He comes to secure his greatest ever victory. It's going to be a victory that will not only secure freedom for his people, the Israelites, but for every tribe and every nation, people from every people group on the face of the earth. A victory that will be once and for all, for all time. A vindication from God, their saviour. The king has come as a saviour. And passing through the gates in triumph, it's but a few day, week, days later that he mounts another hill, a hill called Calvary. And there in the blood and agony of the cross, he is lifted up to win this greatest of all victory, conquering our greatest enemies, the greatest enemy that every human being in the world faces, namely sin, God, rebellion, which leads to death. 
one in one die. Those are our greatest enemies. We can't stop sinning. We can't stop dying. We are as powerless as trying to create a dog by saying the word dog. But there's one from heaven who has all power and all authority, who is totally pure, who comes and on that good Friday mounts the hill and goes upon the cross to achieve this greatest of all victories seen in the history of the world. Three days later, he is vindicated by God his Father. He breaks the power of the tomb. He comes forth from the dead to demonstrate that he has indeed conquered sin, that he has indeed conquered death, not only for himself, but for all who will follow after him. Those ancient enemies from the Garden of Eden have been thrown down, defeated once and for all. And 40 days after that, he returns to heaven. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the scene in heaven when he returns? I imagine that it makes the roar of an Olympic crowd at a gold medal final seem like the rambling cheer of a sports day at the school in comparison. For here are myriad angels, thousands upon thousands of angels. Because the king has returned. And the roar of the crowd is for a victor. Not a victor on the sports field, but a victor on the battlefield. Why do we get constantly moved, rightly so, when we hear and see the stories of the veterans of D-Day? We've been thinking about that a lot this year, haven't we? And why is it almost impossible to hear their story and not have tears in your eyes? Because they bear the scars of battle. These aren't some multi-millionaire sports stars. These are ordinary men and women who effectively were part of a great victory by denying themselves. And we're rightly moved by that. The scars of battle. And Jesus bears in his own body the scars of battle. This is what it cost. This is what it cost. A cry goes up. Lift up your head, O you gates. Be lifted up, O you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And heaven's gates are thrown wide open. The King of glory enters, and he is mighty. And a deafening roar, like the roar of the ocean, echoes around to acclaim him. It's the Lord, it's the King of glory. It was a moment when every hair on the back of your head would have stood up. Doesn't your heart want to join in that heavenly celebration? If you're a Christian, one day you will. We'll gain the liberty of the children of God. Our voices will be freed to praise him, praise him. What a king, what glory, what a victory. So my friend, do you begin to feel the weight of this? Look at his authority and power. All bent to this 
great purpose. This is one of the perfections of God. Anybody in this world who gets great authority and power ultimately misuses it. That's part of the story of history. Not this king. Look at his authority and power. All bent to this great purpose. Look at his purity. It's the old children's hymn had it. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Look at his victory. Feel the weight of it. Did e'er such love, did e'er such love and mercy meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? So my question as we close is simply this. Is he your king? Is he your king? If not, why not? Please, I say this respectfully, but please wake up to reality. He owns you. You don't own yourself. You don't even guarantee your next breath. He does. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. You can attempt to hold on to your life if you will, but you will lose it on that great day when the King of glory returns. So I urge you, come to your senses. Come, ride with this King. Come, join the generation that is spoken of in this psalm, who seek him, who lift up their clean hands to him, who have a pure heart, all because of his vindication, all because of what he's done and given to them as a result of his victory. Follow him. What are you doing with your life? Why keep him shut out? Open up the gates of your life to this king. He's a great king. He's a good king. He's the shepherd king. Stop running. Stop listening to the lies of this world. Stop swallowing them. You are made in his image. You are made to know him and enjoy him forever. Start now. Turn to him. And you can do that just where you are right now. And Christians here, this is your king. Will you feel the weight of his authority in your life? In that specific area that he's called you to obey him, to trust him? He has all power, he has all authority, Trust him. Feel the weight of the purity that he calls you to. And in that specific area of holiness that you struggle with, hear the call of the Saviour to trust yourself to his grace day after day. To have, as Tim Chester puts it, for men and for women, sadly, who struggle with pornography, let the greater love drive out the love for those things. He is a pure God. He invented sex. It's not our invention. He knows how it works. It's a glorious thing for his glory in his way. Feel the weight of his victory, will you, Christian? By every day lifting your eyes up to this king. I wonder, where in your life do you need to open up the gate of your heart, of your life, 
to the Lord today? What ambition, what use of money, what life choices, what relationship, what area of temptation? He can deal with it all. He is king of all. Come, follow him. Let's pray. Father God, may every day we open up our hearts consciously to the King of glory. The astonishing thing is that by your Holy Spirit, he dwells in us, your people. Father, help us never to grieve the Spirit, but rather keep in step with him. And Father, at the same time, enlarge our hearts and our vision to understand how great our King is, how glorious and splendid and awesome and wonderful, that we might rejoice and delight in him no matter what life throws at us, knowing that you are the sovereign Lord of it all. King of glory, come in, we pray. Amen.